0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Father God, we are grateful for your love and we are grateful for life. And we ask that you would open our eyes today that we would see, that you would open our ears that we would hear, that you would open our minds that we would think and believe more deeply, that we would allow you to speak to us, invite us and challenge us you would open our hearts and we would feel the invitation you extend to us today as we gather. Father, we ask uh, that you, in your holiness and in your beauty, and your wonder and in your love and your grace and in your mercy, through the blood of Christ and what he has done for us and the power of his resurrection, we ask that you would be present in a mighty way among us today and that you would have your way with us uh, so that when we leave this place, uh, we would live to the praise of your glory, that we would live life with you, that we would experience you, that we would see those kairos moments in our lives, and that we would walk with you in faithfulness and in love. So, Father, speak to us today in this entire gathering through songs, through prayers, through the word, through conversations with one another, through the communion, through the giving. Father, speak to us, we pray, and be present among us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I said this before a couple of weeks ago, and it bears repeating we live in an increasingly complex world where things are just plain complicated. And these complicated and complex issues often lead to debates and arguments that ultimately complicate relationships. And you see these complexities played out everywhere. You see them played out in the... uh, Political circles in the public square, you see them played out in the homes, you see them played out in social, in ge- social environments or society in general. You see these complexities and relationships played out uh, in, in the workplace and even in churches. And regardless of what side of the issues you find yourself on, it's undeniable how complex these issues have become, largely because they do affect relationships, politically There are issues like gun control and marriage and pro-choice versus pro-life and economics and fiscal responsibility, health care and entitlements. And though for many of us, the answer to these issues are simply based, are simple, maybe, because they're based on our understanding and opinion, yet they're complex regardless of how simple we think the answer are because ultimately these issues divide people. They divide husbands from wives and neighbor from neighbor and politician from politician and then sadly Christian from Christian. And these are, these are just ones I mentioned. They are just the just politically charged issues. The ones that have been isolated as political issues. Then there are the social issues. Social issues like homelessness and poverty and morality and racism and classism and sexism and sexuality. Uh, society has a low view of sex uh, where people are just casually engaging in sex or pornography. Then there's, there's violence. There's alcoholism and there's addictions. And, and those are heavy social issues that complicate life and complicate relationships. And then you've got the issues at work, the issues that complicate life and relationships at work, like deadlines and micromanagers for bosses and people jockeying for promotion and power, sales quotas and productivity goals and hirings and firings and benefits package. And then you've got in marriage other complicated issues like communication styles and personality and family histories and intimacy issues and housework and putting the toilet seat down or picking up your shoes off the floor or what color to paint the walls or did you do the yard work? And then you've got complicated issues with, with children that complicate relationships like buying new clothes for them or competing with cultural styles and trends, buying new toys, playing superheroes early in the morning with no coffee, uh, movie choices, uh, what schools they attend and why, getting them to brush their teeth for crying out loud or just simply go to bed on time, what kind of friends they have, should they hang out with them, what do you do when their friends betray them? Then there's complicated issues like bullying and video games and other types of violent issues. And, and to say that any of these issues in any of these categories, are not complicated to us, is probably to have your head buried in the sand or be profoundly disconnected from society. I need a nap after all of that. That's our world. All in one time. All in one day, isn't it? The news, the light, the world, the school, the children. It's just all in one, one day. And what we find is that these complexities all around us complicate both our faith and they complicate our lives as a church. And so we find ourselves in a bit of a tizzy. Because in faith and in church, there are also issues that complicate our lives and complicate relationships, even within church. We talked about the out there, but what about the in here? You got issues like worship gatherings. Particularly centered upon worship style preferences, like music preferences, they complicate our relationships. You got clothing preferences and preaching style preferences. What happens during communion? For some, there are issues surrounding what color the carpet is or what color are the paint on the walls. For some issues, there are for some people there are issues that surround what kind of people are actually in the church. Where do they come from? Are they from the U.S.? Or are they from somewhere else? Or what background do they have? Or or what kind of past do they bring to the table? There are issues as to what kind of life situation they currently find themselves in. Their Issues like cliques because there are some people who are just simply closer than others. And then there's those who always seem to find themselves on the margin. There are the involved and the uninvolved. There are those who reveal themselves as hypocrites and gossips and slanderers and people of pride. And then there are the other sin issues within the church where people are fighting one another or holding out in secret sin. And then there's division. And there's just all these other issues even within the church that we deal with. In light of all the other issues that I just named. And I'm only in the introduction of the message. And what I'm finding is that we just need simplicity. As a church, we need simplicity. I mean, in your life and in my life, there's no doubt we need simplicity. Unfortunately, you don't unpack that in a sermon. So, so we're going to get to simplicity. In the spiritual practices conversation, we're going to talk about the practice of simplicity in our individual lives. We're going to get there. But right now, we're going to talk about something that has to do with us as a church living life together. Because as a church, we need simplicity. And we cannot avoid these issues. We can't avoid these politically charged issues, these workplace issues, these social issues, or these churchy issues, or these sin issues. We can't avoid them because as long as we have human beings, they will be present among us. And we cannot ignore them. So what we need to do is discover or rediscover a way to navigate these issues, to work through them without allowing them to overrun our faith or overrun the church in its complexity. We need to rediscover a way to navigate them. We cannot turn a blind eyes if they don't exist in our world because they affect the church, every one of them. And so as I learned from Jesus, I've become convinced that faith in church does not have to be complicated. I've just become increasingly convinced as I learned from Jesus. That faith in church does not have to be complicated. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it's easy. Not in, not in any way. Faith in church is hard and it's messy. Because you bring two people in a room and that's going to get messy. Because issues come out and just personalities and all these other things, it just gets messy. I'm not saying it's not hard and messy, but I am saying that, that church and life and faith doesn't have to be complicated. Not as I learned from Jesus. If complicated is just simply stringing a bunch of things together and it's intricately, intricu- uh, whatever the word is, intricately, and then and then confusing it all, I'm not. I'm not sure that church and life and faith has to be complex and confusing and complicated. And I believe if we listen to what Jesus is saying and we do what He says, we actually can find some simplicity in our faith community. We can find simplicity in our life of faith and church. If, now hear me, if we listen to Jesus and then we just do what he says. Ian's life gets really complicated when he chooses not to do it as mommy and daddy say. Really complicated. My life gets complicated when I choose just not to listen to Jesus and trust him and do what he says. See, for me, faith and church was amazingly complex growing up. <laughs> amazingly. I was raised in a church that believed no, outs, no one outside of that particular church affiliation was going to heaven. I was raised to believe that we were the only true church in all of the world. And so no matter how faithful a person was, no matter how loving or obedient they were to God or even to their own church no matter how many right things they did, if they did not have the right church affiliation on their sign and worship the exact same way as they did, as we did in our church, they were just not going to heaven. At best, we're unfaithful to Scripture. That was based on our understanding of church. That's what I was raised in. And, And seriously, for me, this made church complex and complicated on so many levels. And I'm not making light of my heritage. I am grateful to God for my heritage, even in all of its imperfection, because it led me to Jesus and there's value there. But what I'm saying is I was just confused as to what a true Christian was, who was in and, and who was out. I was confused about God's character. And, and as if that wasn't confusing enough, I remember being in church business meetings as a young man, as a little boy where women were told they couldn't say a thing, while the men of the church would literally argue in mean ways about church budgets and what color the carpet would need to be and, and why the Lord served for table cloth was actually moved off the table or, or why the table was moved in general. And I remember hearing people fight over what I thought to even be more difficult issues. Like we had the preacher whose uh, Caucasian daughter was engaged to an African-American man. And they wanted to fire the preacher over that. And I remember sitting with elders and listening to them debate as I grew up. what, What we should do about the unmarried pregnant young teenager. Should we withdraw from her? Should we throw her a baby shower? What do we do when the child is born? I remember sitting there saying, why are we asking these questions? I remember having to explain to why a new Christian, who I baptized, who was 28 years old, who had never lived a day in a religious experience in his life, why, why, bringing, why when he brought a soda into worship and a, and, a, and a church leader told him he needed to leave and not bring that soda in, I remember sitting there having to tell this church leader why that wasn't a good idea. I remember having to explain to another church leader why it's not a good thing to scold a young person, a visiting teenager, as to why he shouldn't wear shorts and should wear a suit. I mean, really, I could go on and on. This was my upbringing. This is complicated. This made church complicated for me. Complex. As if life wasn't complex enough. And here's the most difficult part about the complexity to faith in church life. I have been both the accused and the accuser. I've been the one trying to defend, and I've also been the one offending I've been the one trying to do the explaining, and I've also been the one doing the judging. See, this is complex. And this complicated life of faith and life in the church is nothing new in the story of faith and church. It happened in our day, and it actually happened in Jesus' day. So I want to share with you a story that I am sure that I will be unable to offer anything new to you. But it's relevant to us today, and it's very relative to our series very relevant to our series, and, and, it, and I think it offers a formative spiritual practice, one that cuts to the heart of who we are and could bring transformation to our lives and others as a church. And this story that I'm going to share, that, that is nothing new, <coughs> excuse me, again, that I don't think I'm going to offer anything new, can help us rediscover our identity as a people of God, if we'll be honest with it. And if it's embraced by all of us, this identity that Jesus points us to as a people of God, then, then it will simplify our lives both when we're, quote, out there and when we're, quote, in here. It'll simplify our lives of faith. It'll simplify our lives as a church. Now, here's my confession to this story. Though I have been taught this story all my life, and you probably have to if you have a church, a church upbringing, th- th- this is a story that I really believe I have misunderstood for most of my life until a friend by the name of Randy Harris showed me something. And I always thought I might have had this story wrong when I was confronted with myself and the reality of faith and church life and its complications in light of what I read in Scripture. And when I discovered I had this story wrong, it, changed, it has changed my life. And it genuinely has made my life of faith much simpler. And it has made my view of church much simpler. It's known as the story of the prodigal son. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 15. (laughs) Now, what I love about Jesus and what makes me cringe about Jesus is how Jesus teaches. I mean, there are times when Jesus offers me comfort. And then there are times when Jesus wants to make me uncomfortable. And then there are times when he somehow, simultaneously does both at the same time. I mean, there are times when I listen to Jesus and I'm like, yeah, that's right. And then there are times when I'm like, yeah, that's, wait a minute. I just stepped on my toes. Well, in this encounter, I think this is one of those teachings. And in this story, I think the meaning of the prodigal son is not found in the story of the prodigal son. I'm convinced. I think the meaning of the prodigal son is found in the first two verses of chapter 15. So we'll read the entire thing. Because here's what Jesus often does. He'll tell a pretty story, get you on a side. Then he'll tell another great story and get you on a side. And then he'll tell you a story similar but different that's a lot deeper and more detailed. And then show you what he was trying to tell you in the first place. I think that's what he's doing here. So, here we are. Luke chapter 15. We're going to read a lot. Verse 1. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus. All right, now, stop. Tax collectors and sinners, worst of the worst. These are the, un, these, are the, these are the worst of the worst of their society. Remember I was telling you all the issues that the church I grew up in used to argue about? Well, these folks were worse than all those other issues. It's just, it's just the way it is. Like, they were worse. Tax collectors were blaspheme, thief, terrible traitors and treason people of their country and sinners were exactly what you think except in this culture sinners were folks like prostitutes and lawbreakers and just all kinds of just bad people in society and the bible uses the term sinners it's a broad term but it is a cut to the heart deep term and so verse one all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to jesus which is an interesting statement. If sinners aren't approaching us, then maybe we're not really following Jesus. But that maybe is another, another story altogether. And, and verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I mean, Jesus ate with these folks. He didn't just hang out with them. He shared a table with them. Again, we've talked about this in our life together as a church, about the significance of that culturally. All right, so these, these sinners, tax collectors, they're approaching Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes who are the religious elite. They're the priests. They're the churchmen. They're the churchmen and churchwomen of Jesus' day. They're the faithful attenders. They're the church clothes people. They're the, the preachers and the pastors and the teachers and the elders and the, and the members and the Bible class teachers. They're those people. That's who the Pharisees and scribes are. They're not all bad people. They get a bad rap sometimes, not not even in the text, just from people like me. They're not all bad people. They knew the law of God and followed it. And in this particular story, they're complaining that Jesus welcomes these sinners and tax collectors and eats with them. And so Jesus, knowing what they're doing, tells them a parable, verse 3, story number one. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and comes home. He calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Okay, the Pharisees and the tax collectors I mean, the Pharisees and the scribes hear that story, and they're probably like, okay. And Jesus comes back with story number two, "Or, or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Pharisees and the scribes are like, I get that, I get that. When she finds it, she calls her woman friends and, and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin that I lost. And they're thinking, probably, I, I get that. that. That makes sense. I tell you then, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. And, and i got to think that the Pharisees and the scribes were probably like, All right, all right, I, I'm tracking with you. And Jesus tells the detailed story. He also said to them, A man had two sons. By then, the Pharisees and scribes were really listening. So were the tax collectors and sinners. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. And so he distributed the assets to them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his entire estate in foolish living. And after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. And then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs, which is a cultural insult for a Jew. He longed to eat his fill from the carapods, which carapods are just seeds, uh, seed castings of a tree that, that were often used to feed animals or, or sometimes the poor. And so he, he, it says in verse 16, he longed to eat his fill from the carapods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. (coughs) I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. And so he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran. To him, and he threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, then bring the fat and calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, see, this story, if you ended it there, is exactly how the other parables ended. But Jesus goes on with the story. Now, his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He heard that there was a party going on. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Why is the party? Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because... He has him back safe and sound. And then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded, pleaded with him. You see that? And scolded him. Came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you. I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends when the son of yours comes home, who has devoured all your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. I've never done anything as bad as my brother. I've always done what you told me to do. Always tried. And you never threw me a party like this. And the father's pleading, come into the party, son. And just come on. Verse 31, Son, he said to him, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. Because this brothers of yours, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. See now in this story we often identify with the prodigal son, don't we? And rightfully so. I know I do. Because I lived the life of the prodigal Son, all up with the parties and the alcohol and the drugs and the women and the life. that's how I lived. came to Christ and left, went my own way for a good 10 years. I came to my senses and realized with all my consequences and scars that that wasn't the life I knew to live or was created to live had some consequences to bear as a result of that life and came running back to the father just to realize that he was running towards me. He wrapped his arms around me, hugged my neck, kissed me, and welcomed me home. And he's been throwing a party for me ever since. Because I identify with the prodigal son because the truth is, no matter where you've been and where you've gone, no matter where you think you're headed, The Father will run after you and bring you home if you just come. He'll meet you 90 out of the 100 yards there. Because the Father loves us like that. See, that's the story we tell. That's the story I identify with. See, the truth is, the context of this story is most telling. See, because in the beginning of the chapter, we discover Jesus' audience, which is key to the parable, I think. See, he's talking to Pharisees in the company of tax collectors and sinners. See, truth is, my sinful life, I knew better. Sure, you could make an argument that I was the prodigal son, but I've actually come to believe that I'm not the prodigal son in the story at all. Because I'm the religious I've come to believe that I'm the older brother, especially now, because I am following Jesus the best I can, seeking to be faithful to him. I mean, obviously, the Pharisees in this story are the older brother, which is why Jesus told it, because they were complaining. That's what the text says, remember? They were complaining. Well, the older brother in the story was complaining. They were complaining that Jesus was welcoming the tax collectors and sinners, the muck of the muck. The folks who don't wear the right clothes and smell the right smell and talk the right talk and do the right things and act the right acts, they don't have church decor. They don't have life. And so, and so. They were complaining, the Pharisees and scribes who knew what they should do, who who lived it out themselves. They were the ones complaining at the beginning of the story and Jesus comes through in the the last story he tells with a right hook and and, and makes them understand in a very nice and subtle and yet very explicit way that they are actually the brother because the brother was complaining that the father was welcoming home the sinner and then the Pharisees are complaining that, that Jesus is welcoming home the sinner and the Pharisees... I can understand why, because God is accepting such lowly, disobedient prodigals, and they might ask the question, why them? You know, after all, we're the ones zealous for the law and tax collectors and other sinners, certainly are not. And then we learn in the scope of the narrative, of the whole gospel narrative, that the Pharisees had made their life and faith complicated trying to live out this kind of story. Who's in, who's out? And the thing is, is, is I, I, think, I think we will not move further in our lives as a church and we will, not, we will not navigate the complexities of our world and embrace the simplicity of faith and church until we realize that we're the older brother. We want to identify with the prodigal because it makes us feel really good about our life and it should because we've all been prodigals. But at some point we're no longer prodigals and if we're not careful, we become the older brother. I mean... We all say, I mean, we all say people are loved and accepted. I mean, even the churches I grew up with, the very church that, that told the young man to leave because he had a soda or scolded the young man because he had shorts or, or, or sent the, the pregnant, unwed teenager an ugly letter and, and, and it completely, I mean, they would have said that they, they loved and accepted everybody. I would have said that I loved and accepted everybody. But then, but then God starts sending us these folks. Then he starts sending us folks like this, and and then he starts sending them in droves, and and then they become a challenge to us, and and then they they test us, and and, and then they become a they or a he or a she. There's an us and them, and and they demand a lot from us because of brokenness, and brokenness demands a lot from all of us, And, and it complicates life, but it doesn't have to if we listen to the story. It doesn't have to. If we listen to the story, if we start complaining and becoming the Pharisees and scribes, then we are the older brother. And that's what I'm trying to say. Like, if we're going to be the ones who are kind of, you know, kicking our heels or kind of stepping back and kind of not knowing what to do with it and not preferring it to happen this way and and wish those people I know God loves them, just wish they'd go somewhere else or whatever the case, but then we're the older brother. And so, so what I wanted to introduce to us is a very, very profound practice. And I'm calling this the practice of one another's simplicity and joy is to practice of one another's simplicity and joy. And if we learn to practice this, practice of one another's simplicity and joy, we will be okay no matter how messy and complicated church life gets. We will be okay. We will. We will always be okay. Always. Always. It will be hard and it will be messy and it will be complicated in some ways, but it will be simple. Because we will understand how to navigate this as a church. How do we practice this practice? There are two moves I want to teach you. Two moves. Move number one. We trust the Father with relationships as we prep. We trust the Father with relationships as we prep. Now, when I say trust a father with relationships, that's not the same as trusting the relationship because relationships can grow weary, hard, long, difficult, complex. You don't trust a relationship. You trust God with the relationship. In other words, God, I don't know why this person's in my life. I don't know why they're in this church, but I know that you're in control and you sent him here, and I know what you want me to do, and so I'm just trusting you with the relationship. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be messy. But I'm trusting you with the relationship. I'm not going to be the older brother, father. I'm going to trust you with the relationship. And we do it through prep. We'll talk about that in a minute. I don't know if I've ever shared with all of you, but I am scared to death of heights. Maybe had this picture adequately Uh, shows by the look on my face that I am scared of heights. The intensity. You see Allison coaching me. Really, she's just calling me a a pansy. (laughs) She's saying, be a man. This picture was taken at a retreat a few years back when I was a campus minister at the University of Georgia. Almost 50 students were with us on this retreat. And it was a ropes course. And they were watching... And I was supposed to climb this, uh, I think, four-mile-high pole. At least that's what it felt like. But I was supposed to climb this very high pole. I mean, and, and then I was supposed to, there's a harness around my waist. I was supposed to hook a piece of wire to this harness around my waist with another hook to another piece of wire. All right, now, that's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen or heard of. But I was supposed to do this. I got 50 students watching me. I'm on this high platform. Once I, once I hook this, this piece of wire from my harness to this other piece of wire by a hook, I'm supposed to jump and slide down and have the time of my life. And all I'm doing is thinking about my life. And like I said, 50 students are watching me, so my pride is at stake. And, and so Allison, yeah, she's there coaching me, and she's trying to, you know, cheer me up and get me to do it and call me a pansy and taunt me and, and all these different things and tell me to I be mad. Mean, I don't know what she was saying. It's been a long time. I mean, she's a licensed professional counselor. You'd think she'd be sensitive to my needs, but, but she, she's sitting there, and she's encouraging me. My only responsibility, my only responsibility with my helmet and harness is just to jump. That's all I got to do. Jump and trust the harness, right? That'll do it at, was created to do and I did and I didn't die though I do think for a brief moment as I was zipping down the line that I saw Jesus laughing at me (laughs) as I screamed like a little girl (laughs) see the harness did what it was created to do it held me I was just fine God will do what he says he'll do If he doesn't want us to be the prodigal or doesn't want us to be the brother. If he wants us just to love people and receive them and celebrate with them. If that's what he wants us to do, then he will make sure that we will always be fine as a church. If we will confess that we have a tendency to be the older brother. If we don't confess that we have a tendency to be the older brother, it'll be complicated. And we'll jockey But if we confess that we have a tendency to be the older brother, we will be fine. Because just like the story, Jesus tells our Heavenly Father that He knows what He's doing. And He knows why He's receiving the prodigals. Just like He did when He received all of us who were all once prodigals. And just as the Father did with the older brother, He assures us. Remember, He assured the older brother. He assures us, you already have me. Everything I have is yours. You're okay. Come into the party. And he won't scold us. He didn't scold the other brother. He pleaded with him to stop complaining and just come in and rejoice that the brother that was once dead is now alive, once lost, now found. And he asks us to join him in celebration and just simply receive him. He doesn't ask us to complain or get overwhelmed or moan or gripe or whine or even question. He asks us to do one thing. You ready? Party. That's what he wants. So what is prep? How do we prep? How can we learn to trust God with this relationship? It's real simple. Prep. P means pray. You pray for the relationship. You pray about the relationship. You as a person, as a part of this church. R means remember. You remember that without Christ, you would have nothing too. And without Christ, you and I are different from no one. That the ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. That without Christ, we're all lost in our sin. We're all destined for eternal judgment and punishment. But with Christ, we have everything. And so R is you remember. You remember who you are. And it leads this sense to, to humility. It leads you to this place of grace. Because you remember that you were saved by grace. And that you're not only saved by it, you live by it and relate to others through it. E is you endure. You don't give up. God brought it into our lives for a reason, and he's going to see us through it. And then P is presence. You just continue to show up in the relationship. Like be actively involved in it. It's real simple. You just be present. You don't have to have a word. You don't have to know what to say. Sometimes presence isn't about what to say. It's just about having your eyes open and ears open and heart open. So move number one to the practice of one another's simplicity and joy is trusting God with the relationship through prep. Now, it's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. It's going to be taxing. But it will keep church simple for us as we grow because we are growing and it will keep it simple for us. The second move and the final move is we receive all people through celebration. We receive them all through celebration. This is the how. This is the how to the question of how do we receive them? Friend, how do we receive them? Okay, how do you receive them? You celebrate when they're there. You rejoice that they're present. You rejoice that they showed up. This doesn't just mean after they're baptized. It means now, like, you, the minute God sends them to us, we celebrate. We get excited. We be thankful. We party. This means that you and I don't have to be concerned with the how of the whole thing. We already have the Father, as, as Jesus said. We don't have to feel threatened or make it about us. It's about the gospel and redemption and restoration found and, 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 and being received by all prodigals. And, and yes, it'll be messy. And yes, it'll be hard. But it doesn't have to be complicated, not at all. We just accept people. And we celebrate that they're here. We accept and we celebrate. That's it. That's that's really that's it. And and you've heard this sermon a billion ways from Sunday. You've heard it many, many different times. I get that, but we gotta be reminded of the simplicity of church life. Half the disgruntlements that take place in a church when they grow is is people wanting to be the older brother. So I'm just pleading with all of us and with me, with a mirror right here. Let's not be the older brother. Let's not offer conditions or qualifications to those who come into our midst. Let's just receive them with arms wide open in celebration that they were lost and now found. They were dead and now alive, that for whatever reason God brought them to us in our presence. He trusted them with us. Let's not be surprised when they come. Let's not be judgmental at their circumstances as to how they got into the mess that they're in. Let's just trust our relationship with them to God and receive them in celebration and joy, just like we know the Father does. And let's not reflect the heart of the older brother. Let's reflect the heart of the father. This is the practice. If you're visiting here and you're part of another church, lead your church to practice this. Encourage your church to practice this. If you're arguing over, over this or, or this or, or this or people, then, then you're, you're missing the most important piece of, of faith, which is love God, love others. You can't love God and not love others. It's just not the same. That's not what Jesus did. You just can't find it in the Gospels. And so let's be a church that practices one another simplicity and joy. How do we do it? We trust God with all the relationships that are in this place called the Williamsburg Christian Church. As hard and messy as they are, we trust them with them. And number two, we celebrate every heart that is present. From now until Jesus returns, no matter how difficult it is. That is how we practice this practice together. And I'm telling you, I believe with all my heart, church life will be simple. Messy? Hard, difficult, not easy, but simple. Are you in? That's who we are. Let's be the people of God.